Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I am back with Jonathan Losos, the author of The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa, because this book is so yummy and so chock full of fascinating ideas and tangential journeys of the mind and spirit that Jonathan takes us on, that I had to ask you to come back, Jonathan, because just the title itself, The Cat's Meow, you did so much writing and thinking about cats and their speech and their way of talking either to us or to each other. And clearly, it mattered a lot to you. For, it's a great title, of course, but also you made it one of the very first chapters. Why did that capture you so much? Did, did you feel it was one of the least looked at aspects of cats? Well, I'm delighted to be back, Tracy. Thank you for inviting me back. And um, I, you know, chapter two is on the um, meowing for two reasons. One is um, it's the uh, you know it's the quintessential cat trait. When you think about what cats do, I think meowing is what immediately comes to mind. And moreover, uh, my cats meow at me all the time when they ah, want to be fed, when they yes. want something else, you know. And um, and to me, that's kind of extraordinary. And so the question that I, I start well, my initial assumption was that cats meow to each other. And so by meowing to us, they're just including us in their social circle. You know, they've made us right. honorary cats right. or whatever. Um, but as we discussed last time, uh, the scientific literature suggests that cats actually don't meow to each other very much. Uh, that whatever the meow is for, it's not 
particularly for them to, to talk to each other, if you will. And so that suggests that uh, cats may, as during the domestication process over the last few thousand years, they may have evolved to meow at us as a way of communicating with us. And so that, it, you know, if that's true, that's an extraordinary part of, of how they've adapted to, to living with us. And so that's where I wanted to, um, to start because there's really been some fascinating research about cats meowing. And um, I think there are two particular questions that, uh, that, I, that I wanted to look into. The first is, if, if in fact, cats meow to talk to us in particular, does that mean that, uh, that meowing evolved just recently as a way of communicating with people? Right. Um, or, or looking another way, does the ancestor of the domestic cat meow and other cats, do they meow? And then the second question is, as we all know, cats have different sounding meows that they use in different circumstances. What do those different meows mean? Is there a cat language, if you will, that they use to communicate with us? And so uh, those are the two interesting questions. And shall I tell you what Yes, I want you to, and, and I just want to say they were really interesting questions because they hadn't been asked. I mean, there was the study that we talked about in our last conversation that was one scientist saying in England watching a colony, nope, they didn't talk to each other. That means cats don't talk to each other. It was like, okay, I guess you didn't want to dig any deeper. Um, whereas you were aware of meowing going on in your own household. So who was saying what to whom and why? And I think the fact that you asked those questions is really important because we can't assume anything about silence. I mean, part of it could be that the cats weren't even encouraged to. I mean, think how many people, if you live with the Siamese or Siamese relatives, you can't shut them up. I mean, that's kind of mm. been established. But I think, and even with dogs on a different level, vocalization other than barking, but cats with vocalization that are forms of meow, if you talk to the cat and even mimic some sounds that a cat makes, does a cat want to then try and figure out how to have that conversation with you? That's sort of the next step from what you were doing was, well, when are they talking and what are they trying to say? But I think if we don't encourage it or it kind of bring it out of a cat, that might be willing to have something to say, then he's going to stay silent. I mean, was that one of the things that you thought, that it, part of it has to do with how welcoming to vocalization of a, a setting is? Yes, um, I, a absolutely, because communication is, is, a, is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And so what role exactly. does... Oh, and, yeah, so that that was part of the question. And as we'll see, it turns out it's a critical part of the question. Yes. Um, so our, the first question, it turns out that there are many species of small cats, you know, ocelots and bobcats and lots of cats that no one has ever heard of, like the tigrina and the oncilla and the Bornean bay cat and so on. Uh, it turns out they all meow. <laughs> small cats meow. So nice. the domestic cat did not invent the meow. But uh, a survey of zookeepers showed that they do not meow to people. Um, that they, you know, even even zoo cats that are friendly to their keepers, they don't meow to them. And then there, uh, the particularly most important 
cat species to study is the ancestor of the domestic cat, and that's a species called the African wildcat. And so a researcher went to the Pretoria Zoo in South Africa, where they maintain a lot of wildcats to study their behavior, to get an idea of what, you know, what the domestic cat's ancestor is like. And it turns out that the, uh, the cats meow all the time, but not to each other very much, nor do they meow to people, to the keepers. They were very accustomed to the keepers, but they don't meow to them. So that tells us that uh, the ancestrally the domestic cat did meow, but the fact that they meow to people is something that evolved as part of being the, um, as part of the domestication process. Now, this researcher uh, did a second thing, and that is he recorded the sounds of the African wildcats meowing. Yes. And then he did a test where he took people, uh, students at Cornell University, where he was a graduate student, and he played them the sound of African wildcats or domestic cats meowing. He didn't tell them which it was, and he simply asked, uh, you know, how much they, how pleasant the sound yes. did was. They li- which one did they like better? Exactly. And it, it turned out that they very clearly preferred the meow of the domestic cat to that of the African wild cat. And then when he did some fancy computer analysis of the sounds the cats make, they definitely are different. That the domestic cat's call is, meow is much higher pitched. And so the researcher suggested that we have a preference for higher-pitched sounds because that's the sound of, of children and babies, and so we're kind of hardwired to, to react to that. And he suggested that the domestic cat has changed its meow to make it more pleasing to our ears. And that's um, you know, certainly a, 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 reasonable, a reasonable possibility. The cat has changed its meow uh, to basically communicate better with us. Well, it goes back, let me just say, Jonathan, it goes back to the idea of a two-way communication. So the cat didn't do it just well. If if I get more smiles from you, then I'll do it. It's really because they got better feedback from the humans when they use that different tonality. You have to assume. Either they got fed or, or allowed into the home or the hut, depending on, you know, what the setting was, or they got some affection, some come in out of the rain kind of thing. They did what worked, and they kind of had to experiment with it, is my guess. And then over time, they kept what worked for them. Exactly. That's exactly right. That, that's the scenario. So that was a two-way communication. They, they got yes. better results with a different tonality. This guy did some really cool research, didn't he? I mean, that, he earned yes. his doctorate. He did. So let me tell you the other part of yes, his research, please. which is even cooler maybe. And so what he did was he went to uh, people's houses and, and, and recorded the meowing of the cats the people lived with. And he recorded the meows in five different contexts. And the contexts were, one, the cat being petted and it was content. The second was the, the cat was about to be fed. The third was the cat was being brushed backwards. In other words, this is an annoyed cat. Right. Uh, the fourth was a cat restrained in a room that it wanted to get out, so it was behind a door. And the fifth was the cat was taken to a place it had never been before, which was the researcher's car. Right. And so he got each cat to meow in all five uh, contexts. And then, again, he played those, uh, those calls to college students. And he asked them, can you identify, to guess which of the five contexts they were in? So they'd hear a call, say, oh, in a car, or, or being brushed backwards, or whatever. It turned out that... Um, 
people were no better than guessing, basically. That right. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't know what the cat was saying from hearing the calls. And so that, that suggested that, yes, the cats meow differently in different contexts, but what does it mean that the people listening to it uh, don't know? Well, that, that, that mystery was solved by a subsequent study in England, which took pretty much the same approach. But the one thing that was different in the, sec- in the study was that they, include, they included the person who lived with the cat exactly. as one of the people listening. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that people, when listening to the cat what they live with, were very good at saying, ah, the cat's hungry, exactly. about to be fed, or, mm-hmm. or this cat is not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were no, no better than, than guessing at other cats. And so what this means is that there's no universal language, if you will. That's not, not really a language, but right. no it's universal language. language yeah. but, but each cat and the person the cat lives with have an understanding that uh, I make this sound when I'm happy, I make this sound when I'm unhappy, and so on. And so that, um, so that explains that what these different sounds are, that it's a kind of a private communication that develops between the cat and the person, and it develops in different ways for each each pair of people, people and cats. And so that's, that explains why there are different variations and why it's hard to understand what some other cat wants by hearing its meow. But uh, I, I would say that your book, because this, this story, if you will, this study is so well described in the book, is that it makes you stop and think, or it should make you stop and think, well, I've lived with my cats for 5, 10, 15 years, and I've sort of thought of meowing as meowing in a kind of generalized way. Okay, fine, Buster, I'll go get you some dinner. But if you really stopped, maybe Buster has different things that he wants to say, but you need to stop and pay attention and listen better, right? I mean, I think that that the book really fine-tunes the kind of relationship you can have with a cat, and it demands a lot of the person. It's not some generalized one-size-fits-all, which people who love and know their cats, they know that. But I don't think they know that the vocabulary and language could be one that they have just for you. Like we have, you know, with, with our lovers and partners, we have our own vocabulary or ways of saying things that the other person picks up on. And people have it with their kids, funny nicknames for them. And or, you know, babies cry in certain ways and you know it's a wet diaper versus a hungry baby or a frustrated baby. So I think you really elevate the cat's ability to communicate with us by putting more responsibility on us for paying closer attention, which as a scientist is what you do all the time, wouldn't you say? Yep, you're absolutely correct about that. And it's amazing, the the more carefully you look at things like Mm -hmm. this, the more you figure out, the more you learn. Exactly. And I think that's what is really riveting about the book. It certainly allows you to understand cats better, but just for people that want to understand the world around them better, biologically, because you're a biologist. So that's really helpful. But it just really makes us stop and think, we're all citizen scientists. We can all take in information. We need to stop and pay more attention and then not have a predetermined idea leave ourselves open to, well, I wonder what that meant. I guess that's, is that your process on some levels of being a scientist? You can't go in with an e-day fix. You have to go in thinking, I want to explore this, but whatever the result is, I'm not going to try to control it. 
that is absolutely what you have to do. You have to be open. You have to be very careful and observant and yes. not go in with preconceived notions that, you know, if you have a preconceived notion, you'll just see what you expect. Exactly. And that, you, you have to, you, and you have to, you know, it's hard not to do that sometimes. You have to, you have to design your research so that you can't do that, so that all possibilities are, are, can be observed and, and recorded. And so that, that's a critical part of science. So I, I agree with that completely. Well, it's a critical part of the, the joy of reading the cat's meow, to my mind, is it makes us understand what good scientists do and what scientists do who might go off in the weeds, maybe, possibly, or, or be stumped because when they were doing their work, there weren't certain tools at their disposal. Or maybe they did go in with a fixed idea that they weren't uh, flexible enough to change. I think because biodiversity and what's going on in the world at large, not just with cats, is of so much interest to you both personally and academically, and you want to make a difference in the world, I think your book is also a way to encourage the rest of us to think in more encompassing ways and more open-minded ways about why things are the way they are and how to make them better maybe or keep them from getting worse. I mean, I'm not sure, but... It feels to me as though you teach us all what it would be like to be a biologist or a scientist, and and that's very inclusive. The book doesn't make us feel like you're the smart one and we're dumb. It's like we could all be smarter. Let's go on this journey together. And I'm sure as a well, as a professor, that's how why your students like you so much, because you inc- you include them in the journey. You don't take the journey and lecture to them about it. You invite them along with their backpacks, in a sense. Well, uh, thank you for saying all that, because that absolutely was the goal of this book, to, um, to, to, to present the information, but in a way that's inviting people to think about it and, and think about how we learn what we know about cats, which would be the same about dogs or lizards yes. or anything else, that cats are just a great example of how we learn about nature. It's, it's a wonderful example. I'm hoping, Jonathan, that that this book encourages more people to become scientists, to try biology classes, to not be daunted. You don't have to go and be a medical doctor or a veterinarian if you're studying biology. You could just study the world around you. The world needs more smart and caring biologists, I I would say, given what's happening to the planet. So the planet is very glad for this book. We've we've used up our time, but the cat's meow... How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa by Jonathan Losos is a simply delightful adventure into the world. And cats are taking us there. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. 
I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.